As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful, Herbal Face Food, for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Together, we'll explore and enjoy content and conversations around mastering transitions. In our relations, our wellness, our careers, our families, and especially in our missions and visions. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. This is a great pleasure for me. I am introducing you to Albert Flynn de Silver. 
who was introduced to me by the one and only Danny Shapiro, who insisted that I read your book and meet you and interview you. Welcome to the show, Albert. Thank you so much, Elena. That's so lovely to hear. Danny is a she's a total star in my mind. <laughs> uh, she's she's a dear. She's become a dear friend, and um, pretty much anything she says to do, I do. But I want to introduce you first. You are an American poet, a memoirist, a novelist, a speaker, a workshop leader. You received a BFA in photography, which I love, from the University of Colorado. It says a lot about your writing, I'm sure. And you and I must be the same age. You graduated from there in 1991. Yeah, so I broke 50 last year. Word. I'm about to break 50 this year. Nice. Welcome to the club. Oh, it's the best club. It's the finest club. You also have an MFA in new genres from the San Francisco Art Institute. Whatever that means. <laughs> I mean, that's your graduate work. That's impressive. You stuck around. Your work has appeared in more than 100 literary journals worldwide. Like, hello. There are so many listed here, I can't even, in Japan, France, Australia. You're the author of several books of poems. The memoir is named Beamish Boy. The Kirkus Reviews called that a beautifully written memoir, poignant and inspirational. That's impressive. You taught as a California poet in the schools for more than a decade, working with, oh, this is my favorite part of your bio, thousands of children throughout Northern California and beyond. You've served as Marin, Marin County's uh, first Poet Laureate. Wow. And you shared the stage with U.S. Poet Laureate Kay Ryan, best-selling authors Maxine Hong Kingston, Cheryl Strayed, Liz Gilbert, legendary beat poet Michael McClure. Whoa, dude. And many others. You are the founder, but this is where we get good. This is You're the founder of Writing as a Path to Awakening. And this is about an embodied interconnected approach to creativity and writing. This is why I have you here. <laughs> yeah, so many of us are trying to reignite the love that we have of writing, mm -hmm. the practice of writing, the process of writing. And this is a workshop and retreat series that you teach. It's also an interactive book project. It's also an online course experience. And overarching all of this, the big umbrella over all of this is that you are a two decade meditator and you're merging the art of writing and meditation. And this is where just a big fat wow. And thank you because all of us need to understand how these two things coincide. Yes, um, me too. Yeah. Yeah. There you are. Even though I wrote the book. Well, you can write a million books and still need to do the work. And that's ideally who's writing the books anyway. The journey continues. Yeah. If you wrote the book and then said, all right, I'm done. Peace. That would be no fun at all to talk to you. <laughs> right. Um, you teach workshops at Omega, Esalen, Spirit Rock. Uh, you do live in Northern California. Where in Northern California do you live? I'm uh, based in West Marin County just north of San Francisco. Jealous. I grew up in Westchester, so. Oh, you did? Where? Uh, in South Salem. And then my- it's So beautiful there. Yeah, it's great. It's great. And then my, my parents lived on the Hudson in Irvington for the last years of their life. And they're both gone now. They are. They're gone to the great mm. beyond, which I still have not wrapped my head around, <laughs> even though it's been years. Agreed with that. Yeah. But my mom's been gone for four years and I'm just like, did that actually happen? Yeah. It's just, I think death is sort of the, the ultimate frontier for me Indeed. In the, along Indeed. The, the, the spiritual journey, the creative journey, the human Let's journey. Let's start there. <laughs> I want to start there because death is my, my obsession. Oh my um, God. This is so perfect. <laughs> obsessed. But you do bring that into your work in these very subtle ways. And I would love to know how and what you feel is sort of the most important learning, teaching experience of death and how that can be brought into our, my listeners writing. Mm. Wow. Um, well, you know, it's just this whole thing of the reality of impermanence, which is, you know, sort of the central tenet of Buddhist thought and experience. And 
you know, it just really, when you practice deeply, when you, you engage in an embodied practice, spiritually, creatively, through meditation, through yoga, through Qigong, Tai Chi, or whatever, whatever your path is, you realize that, that, that there's a truth to that. You know, there's, there's a truth to this, this reality of, of impermanence. And I think we, we're conditioned out of knowing that fully. I mean, we sort of know it conceptually as an idea in our heads. But to really embody it, I think if you're honest with yourself, it's, it's pretty terrifying. At least for me, I'll speak for myself, right? But then once you get beyond that terror, you realize this is, this is the nature of existence. And to be with that is to be in harmony with the flow of creative energy. And so in this odd way, it, it frees us up to, to be more awake in the moment and to channel that creative energy into writing, for example, or into painting or into dance or into entrepreneurship or whatever it is that you want to create, that you want to open up to in the world. Right. I am moved to bring us to page six of the book. Ah, yes. Where you're transported back in time, 1973, to the cold tiled downstairs hallway just outside the bedroom of your childhood home in Connecticut. Hmm. You're four or five. Grendel, who is your vicious governess. Yeah, that's my new name for her. Because she was a monster. Her name is Miss Hetty. Right. H-E-D-Y, it seems. You are remembering this woman ranting in demonic German about your clothing that needs to be picked up on the floor. You are recounting the way she was very physically violent with you. Her own rage becomes your experience. And you are recalling this when you are deeply immersed in nature, mm. wandering in the woods. Yes. Can you elaborate on this? Because this is kind of where you realize that you are not your story. Yes. And I think that this is relevant for my listener, as relevant as the concept of death and impermanence and how we bring that into the work that we put out into the world or, or even just for ourselves. But how, like, please elaborate on how I am not my story. My listener is not his or her story. Yeah. So th this is kind of the crux of, well, both the memoir, I get kind of much more into much more detail around that. And there, there's context to it in terms of growing up in this alcoholic, abusive household, which had, you know, being in suburban Connecticut, there was lots of sort of physical stuff, you know, and money for a time anyways. But there wasn't a whole lot of love and compassion and connection. And um, anyway, so I'm going to jump up to the to the story of that that experience. I mean, so I carried this abuse with me for for years and years. And and it just created this, the impact was so strong on my psyche and my conditioning that, you know, I thought I was worthless, that I thought I wasn't creative, that I thought I had nothing to offer the world, that, you know, I was just lost, puppy dog. And uh, eventually I found my way to meditation through, at Spirit Rock, um, I've been out here 25 years. And how old were you when you found meditation? I was a about 26, I want to say, 26, possibly 27. And a friend took me over to Spirit Rock and, and there was Jack Cornfield and he was, Jesus, thank you. Friend. I know. Right. And he was, he was reading poetry Just sitting there. and I had been obsessing on poetry and I was like, Oh, poetry, spirituality. Um, what is it like to sit with yourself? What is it like to be with impermanence? What is it like to show up for your pain? Like these are all total revelations for me. So to make a long story short, I, I end up just kind of falling in love with Spirit Rock and, and going to day longs and then weekend little retreats. And then I meet Jack Cornfield's teacher, this guy, Ajahn Jamnian, who's a Thai Vipassana meditation master. And he didn't speak any English, but I did a number of retreats with him. And 
just sitting with his presence and his joy. This guy was just, he was just happy and he was just exuding love and compassion and the sense of ease that kind of blew my mind. And on one of his retreats, I ended up, this was like a, I think this was an eight day retreat and I was sort of halfway into it and I just wandered into the forest. And as I did most days, um, but this day I just sort of was like, I was kind of exhausted from not being able to sleep and just being completely like freaked out by all the noise in my head. And so I just lay down in this dried creek bed and I was just like, oh, whatever, you know, take me. I'm like done with this. And I just sort of like fell into this meditative lying down meditation state. And I just had this experience of the energy like flowing through me and releasing through me. And this, you know, it was, a, it was an image. It was like a waking dream. It was just, and there was Miss Hetty, there was the governess and she was, she was like trying to terrorize me. And she was at me, you know, like this demon. And she was like yanking and pulling my hair like she used to. She was, but she would pull my hair. And then in this, in this moment, she was, it was like she pulled it out and it was just like this weed that she couldn't do anything with. She pulled my arm. She yanked my arm. She ripped it off. And she was like, God damn it. She, get, she just kept getting more and more angry because as she tore me limb for limb, there was nothing that she could do. She couldn't get to me. And eventually she got so like enraged that she just like exploded in this like puff of blue smoke. And in that moment, there was this like literal energy release that came out of my body as I'm lying in this creek bed and just sort of released. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I thought I was like, I thought it was just, I was just floating up into the trees. I thought I was going to completely dissipate into the canopy. And it was just this remarkable experience of letting go. And I realized that moment that like, oh. This is my story that I've been holding in my body, my story of abuse and addiction, my story of not good enough, not creative enough, not worthy, all of that. And it was just kind of burning up and floating away in this, this vision. And it was just the craziest experience. Dude, the fact that she materialized in your mind when you were completely wide open and not only did she materialize, but then she also dematerialized. That's right. And part of this came through the practice of writing. You know, it came through the practice of writing the memoir. Say more. Writing the story to let go of the story. Like I had to go back in and, and as I was writing into the story, I had to re-experience the grief. I had to re-perceive things from other people's points of view, from my parents' points of view, from Miss Hetty's point of view. Like, she couldn't just be this demonic monster. What was her story, right? Like, where was she coming from? There she was, an immigrant from Germany. Well, she was from Switzerland, I think, Eastern Switzerland, and uh, alone with this, you know, wealthy family in the suburbs of Connecticut, probably lonely, disconnected from her. She family. herself had totally been abused. Obviously. I'm sure. I'm sure. And my parents were probably not easy bosses. Um, and, you know, here were these spoiled, erratic children who were impossible to control. <laughs> I mean, so I, it was this whole exercise in compassion through the process of the writing and through the process yeah, yeah. of um, reliving that story on a certain level, you know. Do you recommend, so my listener is now considering writing their story. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend couple questions. Do you recommend writing the story from each person's perspective? I've actually done that exercise and it's very cathartic. Do you recommend that? Absolutely. I think points of view is, I mean, this is a standard element of storytelling, POV, right? Point of view. And the whole like empathetic drive around creativity, particularly for me in writing, whether that's a novel or a memoir or a poem, is about inhabiting other bodies, other entities, and trying to, to understand, like, what's it like to be a flower? What's it like to be a tree? What's it like to be a stone or an African refugee or a Jewish immigrant or an African-American, whoever? You know, just really trying to embody 
this other being that is not that you think you're separate from that you think you have nothing in common from because that's the social conditioning but that ultimately is your brother your sister your mother your father your grandmother part of the right. human community and so when you write when you enter into that creative space of writing from their point of view the only thing that can arise is compassion is insight is understanding Second question, do you recommend, there's a difference that you um, cite on page 17 of your book, uh, the difference between stream of consciousness writing and free writing. What's the difference? Oh, do I make a difference between the two? You make a distinction on that page. Let me see if I can find it for us. It's in my notes. I mean, in general, I'm thinking, you know, stream of consciousness, free writing, it's, it's kind of the same thing. It's different than... You say that they've been two of the most helpful and productive aspects of your practice. Oh, yes, absolutely. Most would consider them to be the same thing. Yeah, pretty much. You say that you understand them to be distinct in that free writing or free rights are framed by a specific amount of time as an exercise or a practice, whereas stream of consciousness writing is continuous free association unbound by time or length. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's yeah. a minor distinction. But it's helpful in you know in the in the workshops when I'm teaching on retreat and stuff we we do these pretty brief short free write spurts that are super powerful because first of all they come straight out of meditation I always begin with meditation and you'll notice like the book every chapter of the book at the end has a meditation and then a free write or or a writing exercise some of them are free write some of them are are more engaged okay. writing practices but there's always a meditation first so we meditate we sit in silence we enter into the womb of creativity of creative energy and then we go straight into what's there in the moment in the body not what we're thinking we should write not what the chattery self-recriminating mind is shouting at us as we're writing but what's really here what's here in the heart and so when we're writing from that space and we're writing urgently and we're writing quickly, the, the critical mind doesn't have time to catch up. And so we can get it surprise. You know, we can get it mystery. We can get it new insight. One of the most gratifying things for me as a teacher is being on retreat and offering up these rather simple exercises within a particular context and seeing people's faces light up like, oh, I didn't know I had that inside of me. <laughs> it's just the greatest thing ever. It's so sweet it's so to cool. see people find themselves through their own words. Right. Because I'm not, you know, as a teacher, I don't like, I'm not telling you things. I'm not, yeah, I'm certainly not really telling you anything new. I'm just creating space, really. I'm holding space. I'm reminding you right. of who you really are as a creative genius, as a human of, of infinite mm potentiality. And then I'm sort of redirecting attention. Right. And then you do the rest, right? You write the brilliant poem. Um, I had this great experience last, I think it was last year, maybe the year before at 1440 Multiversity. Do you know this place? Yeah, of course. It's a new retreat center in, in Santa Cruz for those who don't know. And it's kind of a little bit geared towards a leadershipy some businessy stuff, but they have yoga and they have meditation and they have wellness and all, all kinds of stuff. Anyways, I was um, teaching my writing as a path to awakening workshop. And there was this um, very um, clean cut businessy looking guy in my workshop who, you know, judgmental mind would have said, Oh, you know, menchy businessy dude, like, <laughs> you know, not like expansive, creative type. And he even said like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm a business guy and I had a fitness company for a while. I'd never written anything before in my life. Um, and he was really there to kind of check out 1440. And somehow he came upon my workshop and was like, this sounds kind of interesting. And anyway, and he was interested in the meditation piece. And he was very quiet, like the whole weekend. And, and then at, at one point, like on Sunday morning, he sort of tentatively rose his, raised his hand and he was like, Albert, 
Albert, Mike, I, I don't know what's going on, man. This is just like the weirdest thing that's happening. I, I, it's like all this, all of a sudden, all this poetry, this hip hop poetry is flowing through me. And I don't know anything about hip hop. I don't know anything about poetry. I don't know where it's coming from. And I was like, awesome. That's cool. Yes. Are you going to share some with us? And he was like, oh, no. You know, he was sort of mortified for a second. But then the entire class, we were all just like in love with this guy. We we're like, yes, you've got to share it. So he's like, oh, I guess so. And he reads us this like incredible, rhymy, hip hoppy, insightful, fun, wise poem that just came out of him, you know, because he was open and he was channeling the universe and he was so blown away with himself. And it was the coolest thing, not in an egotistical way, yeah, yeah, yeah. but in like a revelatory way, you know? That is the sweetest. Yeah. No, it was just made my year. Yeah. <laughs> I, that just made my day over here. Um, so you recommend reading. And this, I think, is, I think for my listener, this is going to be the most valuable nugget. In case you have stopped reading entirely, my sweet listener, here is a reminder. Albert suggests reading a minimum 20 minutes a day in whatever you like. Plus, if you can, 20 minutes outside, whatever you like, from cereal boxes, I quote, to Victorian novels. I think this is the best thing ever that happened to me as a kid was that I had copious amounts of time to read due to some family circumstances. And I was mm -hmm. always by myself, not always, let me not dramatize. I was a lot of the time by myself and reading. And I am now still a voracious reader. And in fact, Danny recommended to me The Overstory by Richard Powers. Have you read it yet? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. I'm like, I'm rationing it. Yeah, it's beautiful stuff. And now I'm going back and actually writing down by hand the hundreds of passages that I've noted and folded and underlined because they're influencing my own writing in such a serious way. This is exactly it. This is the practice. Go on. So reading is writing. Writing is reading. And to be a good writer, if you want to become a good writer or a better writer, improve your writing, one must not only read, but there's different levels of reading, right? They're sort of skimming things. But then there's the more immersive read where you're just like, wow, this is a great book. I really enjoy this. And you're, you know, you're reading every page. And then there's like immersive reading, like you're describing, in which you're just not only immersed, but you're enchanted. And you're rereading passages. And you're even, you might even go to the extent of copying out certain passages that you love and writing them down by hand or typing them up and just looking at them. That's my crazy. Not to copy them. No, that's my total version of no, great. Like I love doing that because it brings, sorry to interrupt you, but I have to say this. It, no, no, it almost great. brings me into new ways to synthesize words, new direction for sentences, yes. new orders for things yes. that I never uh -huh. would have come up with on my own. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I should have collaborated with you on this book. Dude, there's still time. <laughs> there's plenty of time. I have not talked to that many people who really get this, this concept and how important this is for writing practice. Because how do we know what's possible with language unless we really get into like seeing how people construct their sentences? That's right. And in the overstory where he... Well, I was just going to say, I was so charmed by the fact that... Um, Wes Nisker, you know who Wes Nisker is? I don't. Buddhist teacher here on the West Coast. And he's a kind of a comedian. He had a radio show forever in San Francisco. Okay. And uh, he's written a bunch of books. And he's just a funny, sort of brilliant, sweet guy. And he wrote a blurb for, for this book. And he just, he said something about, like, lucky for us that I learned how to write along the spiritual path <laughs> because he was sort of riffing off the the fact that not that many people, I mean, especially it's different when you're writing a nonfiction book and you're trying to impart information versus, you know, writing a great novel where you're trying to be right. 
all prosy and creative and so forth. But I think it's equally important when you're writing nonfiction to honor your reader by being as, oh God, as like creatively enriching. Yeah, enriching Enriching and intentional um, as you can be with every, every sentence and every paragraph so that it's, it becomes luscious and engaging. Luscious. (laughs) Luscious. <laughs> Luscious. <laughs> I love that word. <laughs> um, do you read before or after meditation at all? Um, yes, both. Like right now I'm, I'm rereading this translation and um, sort of this scholarly thing about the Heart Sutra. And um, By whom? Uh, it's by Red Pine. And what? it's it's a great little book. It's because um, he really breaks down the Heart Sutra into all its like constituent little interesting points and stories and origins and speculations from over the centuries. So I'm just rereading that because I'm sort of I'm working on a book idea around a little bit around the Heart Sutra, but mm. mostly about personal identity. Anyways, so I read that before. You know, I like to take those sentences and phrases into emptiness. And then afterwards, of course, you're more open and receptive in some ways. And so reading after meditation is kind of a cool practice as well. That I agree with totally. But I haven't I haven't really tried reading beforehand because I meditate so early in the morning. So mm-hmm. I'm going to try that. Yeah. I mean, I don't read in depth. I would read like a little paragraph. A passage. Or- Right. Yeah, passages that will spark, um, you know, that kind of like can guide you in. Right, right. You link on page 113, you link devotion to this practice of kind of showing up no matter what the situation to your writing. And you say first that devotion and spirituality at its most basic level means committing to presence showing up with your full self at any given moment with an open, patient, and compassionate heart, no matter the shadow of the judgmental mind, no matter the situation. And then you go on to say that, quote, you writing your novel, this is one of my favorite, you writing your novel is your novel being written through a more open and free you. Mm. So the thing is actually writing itself. Whatever it is, the paragraph, the book, the novel, whatever it is, it's writing itself. Mm -hmm. You're saying that your mission, our mission, my mission is to practice devotion so that my entire being can open, receive, and then eventually be kind of the conduit for this work, for the novel or whatever's coming through. Yep. Do I have that right? (laughs) You have that absolutely correct. (laughs) I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) And you know, speaking, well, of, you did. <laughs> you speaking of Annie Shapiro, uh, uh-huh. you know, she inspired a lot of that. She has a whole book called Devotion, which I'm sure that you, was my first book of hers that I read. Yeah. Which I love. And, and it yeah. really, that book made me think a lot about the importance of devotion when it comes to the creative act, because it's so rough right. out there right. for, uh, writer artist well she she says it mary oliver said it too in one of her poetry instructional books mm-hmm. and danny says it too you know you have to show up for the muse yep you know you have to get there get to the page get to the computer whatever it is show up so the muse can actually come through mm-hmm. and work through you right um which i really appreciated and you know if you're listening to this and you're wondering should i write could i write am i a writer yes you're a writer not a one of us is left out of this if you're living a life you're a writer <laughs> and as long as you're just sitting down and writing you are creating the the work so do yes exactly and the devotion piece is important for you know, finding the right reasons that you're writing something or creating something, because it's so easy in our culture of shiny objects and celebrity to really get caught up in like 
you know, I want to be famous and I want my book to be a bestseller and I want to blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like I struggle with that stuff all the time. And, you know, you've got to find that deeper reason um, and stay devoted to the practice because you know that it nourishes you so much and that you believe that you have something to say that's that's going to be of value first maybe to yourself as a as a kind of release and then hopefully to someone else out there it may resonate and it could just be one person 10 people right 100 right. people i mean as a poet you know i wrote for years and years and literally like i didn't have any fans <laughs> you know i had friends i got published in these little magazines and a couple mm-hmm. of big ones, but nobody reads mm-hmm. literary magazines. And when I say nobody, I mean like maybe 10, 20, 30 people. You know, there's 300 million people in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you start thinking about those numbers, it can be like disheartening, but it's not about that. You know, it was about the fact that I had this community of writers and that we were in dialogue with each other. And just sharing poetry because we loved poetry. We loved language. And right. and then I also had the community of children uh, when I was teaching, which was like the best thing ever. Because, you know, there's nothing more amazing than going into a classroom, presenting this concept of poetry and of connecting with your creative self to children who are so conditioned out of any form of creativity, especially creative writing. And you come in as as poet guy or girl and poet man or woman. And, you know, you, you show up with this enthusiasm and with all these cool poems that were written by other children. And it says to them, yes, I can do this. Yes, I have something important to say. Yes, I have thoughts about the world. Yes, I have emotions that need to get out of my body. And it's like cool stuff happens, you know, these poems that get written by kids in fourth and fifth grade, third, fourth, fifth grade, yeah. uh, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade are just yeah. mind blowing, yeah. totally mind blowing. So that was the community that sustained me devotionally as well. Right. Like working with kids was going to be my job before I started teaching yoga. I was convinced I was an art teacher, Uh huh. got trained and everything. Um, because your book is a year in the process of writing his path to awakening, of course, I selfishly went to October, which is my birth month, uh-huh. and started poking around in there recently again. <laughs> um, page 145 really struck me. You are talking about spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle, who teaches a wonderful practice in which he asks participants to pause, sit, and simply be with a flower, to simply feel into its presence. Every living being, you say, has an essence and emanates an energy field from the intense presence of great white sharks and grizzlies to the delicate flittering of swallowtail butterflies and wavering wildflowers. Larger beings, you say, give off a powerful warning energy, subtler creatures, a soft invitational one. What happens when we tune into the most rarefied beings? How about when we connect with the subtler aspects of our innermost selves? Being with the quiet nuances of our immediate experience is a practice of re-enchantment with the world's miraculousness and beauty. It's a practice of re-enchantment with the self. Dang, who wrote that? <laughs> who wrote that? What? You know, it's not that it's often so you good. hear your work read out loud back to you. It's important. I do it with almost every guest. Oh, it's so fun. That's cool. It's not bad. My mother would say it's such fun, by the way. Thank you. My mother would say that's no problem. Exactly. Here we go. Elena. <laughs> Elena, it's either so much fun or it's such fun, but it's not so, so fun. fun. Yeah. Oh my God. I can hear I it's like yesterday she was standing here saying that. But you give us the most incredible exercise after all those beautiful words. You say, try this. Tune into each of your senses directly and write from the perspective of that sensory experience, not from the person experiencing the sense, but the sense itself. 
as if it were an animal or a cosmic entity, right from the inside of the eyes outward, the inner ears outward, the depth beneath the skin outward, the cave of the nose outward, the rippling underbuds of the tongue outward, right as if you were an ear, an eye, a nose, a tongue, a wrap of skin. Describe your shape, your deepest, most mysterious workings. Speak about how information enters you, how you receive it. Write about how you send this information to the brain and then out into the world. This is priceless. Thank you. I feel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel this is really, really, really valuable to anyone who is, you know, listening and curious about how to start writing. Start anywhere. Exactly. Be precise, I feel, mm -hmm. is the lesson there. You know, be precise. Go, go direct. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, from your own experience, right? Not from, you know, I think we, we often give up our agency and our creative power to the external, to other people, because we think they have it and I don't, because they're published or because they're a, a celebrity or whatever. And that's just nonsense. It's hard. I, I empathize because I know it's hard to shake that perception. And it does mm -hmm. take practice. You know, it does take energy and attention and practice of just like, coming back to showing up every day and to really doing this meditation stuff because you can't really think your way out of it because it, I, for a lot of us, it's really strong. The sense that well, I'll never be as good as so-and-so or I could never write like that. I mean, you're, you're hearing right now from a person who, you know, a suicidal alcoholic who thought they were a waste of skin. I hated myself to no end to such an extent that I wanted out of this earthly realm. And so if How I, old were you when that was true? I was in my teens and early 20s until things got so bad that, you know, I woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed with no idea how I got there and under arrest. What? And this was after, this was two years after I passed out face down drunk in a driveway and got run over by my best friend no so it's like you know this is what we're dealing with <laughs> it's just like stubbornness right like wow. i somehow survived twice and then i i woke up in that hospital bed the second time and i was like whoa i'm definitely not going to get another chance like this is this is it time to show up and take responsibility or it's over. And so if I can like make that transition, little old me, and me, then, <laughs> then anybody can do this. I swear to God, you know, it's, right. it's just like, and I'm still very much on the journey like any of us are. And, you know, one of the great things about reading Elizabeth Gilbert and for example, I'm just going to take her in as, as an example because she's, She's a rock star, right? And it's so easy for us to be like, oh, I want to write like Liz. You know, Liz is amazing. And, and all that stuff is true. And yet I know from having met her and spent a little bit of time with her, and also I got a chance to interview her, that she too Sweet. experiences great dread at times. She too experiences great doubt and writes a lot of shitty sentences. And so... You know, when you get into, you're, you're able to connect with that reality and that truth. It's like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not so different. Maybe too, I can make mm -hmm. these little, take these little steps and start to move in the direction that is revelatory, that is participatory, that is insightful for me and, and hopefully the world. Right. In... Middle of the book, around page 44, you say that practice doesn't make perfect, <laughs> it makes process. That's <laughs> my favorite quote. It's so good. And with consistent attention, well, it's just what's true. I mean, you know, like any other author, if you're just saying what's true, eventually something is going to bubble up to the surface as 
a profound universal reality for people. Right. Exactly. That's just it. It's one of those things. It's not me. So I'm like, I, you know, part of the ego wants to take credit for it. (laughs) And then, but the reality is that it's not, it's not me. It's that open, you know, stepping into that open, vulnerable space of creativity. No, that that's exactly right. Stepping into that space and waiting, you know, the practice consistently walking into that space makes for a process. And you go on to say with consistent attention, proficiency, and eventually with further devotion, mastery. Yes. And so I, I feel like anybody who shows up for the practice of writing becomes a master pretty quickly because you're showing up. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you have to do is show up and try. That's right. That's right. And you also mentioned on this. Well, I'm just going to say that mastery is kind of a loaded term, right? You know, we think of master. I am Lord over you because I'm so amazing and creatively brilliant. But (laughs) mastery just means that you're committed to excellence and being as good as you can possibly be. So I know it's just a word. So don't be, try not to be too intimidated by the word mastery. Well, I think just to follow up with that, mastery to me just means somebody who's just showing up and somebody who's giving their all to the process of it, not necessarily somebody who's perfected it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because perfection is a myth. Totally. It's a concept. It's just this like ideal construct, which doesn't really right. exist in solid terms, which doesn't mean that we don't, again, strive towards excellence and want to create something as good as we can possibly make it. But, that, you know, perfectionism can be a deterrent. You know, it can keep us off the, off the page. It definitely kept me off for a very long time. And now I just write and write and write. And every now and again, something really great emerges mm-hmm. because I'm not trying to be perfect and I'm just letting it roll. Yes. Same page 44, you also introduced the idea of having a writing altar. Ah, yes. Would you just share more about that for my listener? And then we'll go on to the, the questions that I have for you. Well, think about it in terms of, the, in the same way that you might have an altar for any spiritual practice, you know, whether you keep, um, like what is um, Thich Nhat Hanh calls them his little angels. He has on his, his altar with all these photos of people the important people in his life, people that have inspired him and that, you know, family and friends and connections and part of his community. Um, so on your altar, you might have various icons and images and statuary or whatever. And so this, the same thing can be with an altar to your writing, your creativity, you know, things that represent the energy of, of creativity and the people that inspire you. Like I have, um, I have Walt Whitman on my little writing altar. Mary Oliver is always present. And some of them, you know, they can be represented by physical pictures or uh, quotes or whatever. You know, I mean, this is another space to get creative, right? Sculptural. It's sculptural. Yeah. You know, have a vision. I've had on my altar for a long time, little quotes from favorite authors and teachers, always. Uh-huh. I'm happy to hear that's what you meant. Yeah. Um, I have three questions that I always ask every guest, but I have a fourth for you, which I'm going to start with. <laughs> and that is, um, I like to give people assignments. And I know we've sort of set forth several possible assignments during the course of our talk here, but uh-huh. if you had to share one favorite prompt with my listener. Uh, what first pops into your mind? Uh, I think one of my favorites is my, my letter writing exercise to an emotion. So it's usually kind of an involved, I'll give you the short, quick version, but it's usually an involved thing, just so you know the context where we begin with a, an extended meditation, we connect to the body and to the breath, and then we, we touch in with the heart and really focus in on the heart center and with a particular feeling that's up and present in the moment. And it could be anything, whatever is real for us in, in that moment. Right. And then we start with just writing that word down. 
And then the, the assignment or the invitation is to write a letter to that emotion and begin dear fear, dear love, dear joy, dear excitement, dear confusion, whatever it is. And make sure it's an emotional feeling, not like a hunger, like that's a physical feeling. So it should be an emotional feeling. And address that that feeling as if it were an entity, maybe as if it were an animal. And be as specific as you can. You know, what color is this feeling? What shape is it? Um, imagine it's, it's um, what verbs describe its movements. Where do you find it in your body? Um, are there so nice. like, materials that you could compare it to, etc.? And then um, just, yeah, let, let it go into that. Like, it, like you were writing a letter to, to um, a person, except it's an emotion. And it might turn into an animal. <laughs> Who knows what? For me, I think it's going to turn into a healing. So I want to, I want to, wow. But animals are the ultimate healer. It's like you're writing to an entity. Hmm. So I have three questions that I ask every single guest. And the first is what in your body or life or sphere needs healing right now? Oh, whoa. <laughs> whoa. Oh, God. I think the, the rejection drama. You know, when you read my bio, like it all sounds very impressive, I guess, or maybe it doesn't, but whatever. <laughs> it's like things have been done, right? Poems have been published. But a lot of that, I mean, my Sounds True book came out a couple of, when's that, 2017 now? Yeah. I don't know what's happening with time, uh, which felt like a really wonderful and amazing <laughs> accomplishment. But around all of this, I've just been dealing with a really amazing uh, levels, what feels to amazing levels of rejection to me. I've been working on a lot of fiction projects and I lost my, my agent a couple, like a year and a half ago. And I haven't been able to find an, another agent, a new agent. And so there's this, I'm really struggling in, in this interesting way with, um, with that, this sort of next level of, of professional creative expression. And I don't have an agent. You don't? No, I'm never hiring an agent. I'm sort of trying to think about like, okay, is there life beyond an agent? Cause I'm really tired of this. What does an agent even do? Like just call your publisher and devise your next book. Believe in yourself so wholeheartedly that your bio is never even a question to you again. Go you forth. What's your next book? Let's do this. Sounds true. Is amazing. Yeah. Well, there's a story there too. <laughs> so. Well, there's always a story, but if you, you believing in yourself and you having this book that's been written, you having your experience that you've had, I'm certain there's another book coming through you. Yeah, no, there is. And it's, it's, it's in process. And I'm just trying to figure out like, how do I want to get this out in the world? I you see. Know? Because the, the traditional paradigm in terms of publishing is really it's breaking down and it's starting to piss me off and annoy me. And so Why don't like, you play with it though. Don't let it piss you off. Don't, don't let it annoy you play with it and take right. advantage of the fact that it's breaking down and make your own book. Well, I, which is what I'm, I'm doing. Which is what I'm doing. So what was your question again? <laughs> well, we have the answer already, which is what needs healing right now yeah. is your frustration with the current status quo and you're going to move past that and do without an agent and do what you want to do and put the work out in the world that you need to do. Thank you for saying that. No I'm, I'm going to join with you in that intentionality. You said that so astutely and so clearly um, as if it were so that it's so I'm going to take that in. I'm going to take that in. It so thank you. So, dude. Here, I'm going to read you your own damn words. 126. Ah. The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves are certainly not fixed. We constantly move them around, reinvent and recreate them. We don't have to be limited by these events, these perceived facts of our lives, nor an inherited or 
conditioned sense of ourselves as being created by these stories. Stories take place around us all the time. Part of waking up, you say, requires (laughs) tuning in and becoming more aware, mister, becoming more aware of the stories we tell ourselves as well as the infinite array of stories playing out around us all the time. They have a lot to teach us about reality, truth, beauty, and our own creativity and the potential for transformation. I'm going to read that book. Read that damn book. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) Second question. What's your favorite view? What's your favorite view? Favorite view? View. Like Danny gave me Positano, young Pueblo Diego Uh Perez gave me from within his meditation. That's his favorite view. What's yours? Oh, gosh. Wow. It's, um, well, there's a favorite internal view which is just Mm -hmm. emptiness and silence and spaciousness that's beyond, you know, articulation. And then uh, my favorite external view is probably going to be Big Sur standing at the top. I'm working on this Jaime D'Angelo project right now, fiction book project. And Mm. um, he lived in Big Sur kind of near Partington Ridge where Henry Miller lived and all these writers back in the day. And it's um, truly spectacular. Yeah. So that's fair. And then the last question, what does prayer mean to you? Um, Prayer means presence. Prayer means breath. Prayer means poetry. Prayer means song, voicing with the wind. Mm. Beautiful. I think that's enough. <laughs> so it's all, we could go on, but that's very beautiful. I um, am so thankful for your time. We took a lot of it. I appreciate it. My listener who is interested in pursuing writing, whether it's a, just as a practice or as a professional pursuit, thanks you. (laughs) So many little nuggets of wisdom here. And also like truth, it's not easy to be a writer. It's not easy. Well, Elena, I really appreciate you. You are an angel. And just Mm. um, the way, you know, I've done a lot of these interviews over the last couple of years. And this has been, you know, there hasn't been, I don't think one person except maybe Tammy Simon. Who She's has, badass. Who, she is badass. Her interview. Oh, man. I love her that podcast totally like pushed me to the love edge. Um, uh, has not really, you know, sort of drilled down into that vulnerability piece, which I really appreciate. Um, hmm. And just like reminding us that we're all in this creative journey together. We're all human. Um, yeah. And that uh, humility is wisdom and, and connection is everything. And um, so I really am so grateful for the connection of being able to connect with you and speak with you and your audience. So thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's really been a pleasure to have you. And uh, we, we will be in touch, I have a feeling. I hope so. Thank you so much. Blessings. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. 
The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.